Hello and welcome to Cooking Books with me, Jilly Smith, the podcast which takes us a little deeper behind the pages of the best of the food books. This week, I am at the Abergavenny Food Festival, back in my hometown with Financial Times restaurant critic and kitchen cabinet panellist, Tim Haywood. His latest book, Loaf Story, is a love letter to bread, but for me, tells a much more interesting story of Britishness and class. If you went to my dad's mum's house, the bread was on the table in the sun-blessed packet, opened up, and everybody was taking slices off the top and mopping it in the gravy and, and, and eating it like that. You went to my maternal grandmother's house and you could have a slice of bread if you asked. That was cool. They, they didn't mind. It was the same stuff, but it lived in a bread bin in the kitchen. I caught up with Tim at the centrepiece of the festival, the Castle Dome, in front of a live audience who'd been enjoying a weekend of food talks, live demos and panel discussions about everything that food's about. Tim, like so many of our food heroes, is a regular visitor. Yeah, I've been trying to work it out. I think it must have been about seven times before lockdown. I remember I was writing for The Guardian when I first came and I, I, I was so charmed by it and I'd never been to the place before. And it's so... It was so tiny and so sort of weirdly hobbity. And I genuinely felt that I'd sort of go back down the mountain, it would disappear behind me in the rearview mirror in a sort of twinkle of fairy dust. Um, and it, what really struck me is that sort of that, at that time also, finding groups of food lovers getting together was kind of a lovely thing. It was very empowering. Yeah. It feels like, you know, these, these are our people, this is great. And, and funnily enough, I know it's smaller this time around. Um, but it feels lovely. It feels really intimate, like it used to, in that in that nice way. Next year is going to be huge. Yeah, it's be absolutely rock and roll. I'm coming by helicopter personally. Going to land over there. You'll my Winnebago, my entourage, the whole lot. <laughs> but this year, let's keep it small and intimate. <laughs> Except that, as always, we've been talking about the very serious issues around food, and we've just come yeah. out a debate mm-hmm. about hospitality industry. Now, yeah. as the FT restaurant critic, you've probably got some things to say about that. I noticed you didn't put your hand up um, in the debate about where we are with hospitality as a restaurant critic where do you think we are um gosh it, it, it's difficult because I'm, I'm, I'm poacher gamekeeper everything i also i own a small restaurant in a small town uh, cambridge um I'm, I'm reviewing i also uh, i travel around the country for the ft we're doing a bunch of videos at the moment interviewing restaurateurs in different parts of the country and how they're responding to covid so i've been kind of immersed in that story for for a long time i, I, I didn't put my hand up to be honest because it feels very bleak uh, it, feels, it feels very, very bad at the moment. I think the last six months have been pretty grim. I think the next six months are going to be even tougher. Um, I, think, I, don't, I don't think a lot of, of, of people understand how furlough has worked. But it does feel to me very much like we've been, as restaurateurs, sort of, we've been kind of appointed by the government as the dole office. It's a much more appealing way for us to give people a portion of their wages than to say, actually, no, you're closed you know, go, in, go into the social centre, social security and get the money that way. It's the same money redirected as it would be. Um, but it's left this kind of artificial feeling of, yeah, you guys are fine. It's all terrific. And now we're hitting the end of it. And there's, there's no staff. There's supply lines are appalling. Um, I, the very positive thing is that the restaurant industry is made up of small independent traders mainly at least the ones that are involved in these kind of things. There's a lot of other big operations that are, that are different. And, and I'm seeing an incredible amount of creativity under pressure. Yeah. So people are finding ways to do, to make business, to make money, to change what they're doing. 
Uh, they're, they're, they're contracting the size of their menus. Much more creative thought about what food to use. Yeah. Um, so there, 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 there are good things. We will come out of it. Yeah. But the next six months are going to be absolute murder. Yeah, and we all have a role to play in that. And what I get from a lot of these panel discussions, I don't know if anybody else does, is, is this constant message about disconnect. We are so disconnected. We're disconnected from mm. what we eat. We're so disconnected with the, the way that the industries work. Mm. And so actually to understand that to, to tell more stories as journalists we need to tell more stories about how it works somebody mm. said earlier about you know telling stories about where the produce comes from how it comes to be such great quality what mm. goes into that we all have a role to play with that but also and you know to, to segue nicely onto your book <laughs> we are incredibly faddy as well yeah. and we will go into the fads that we've been through in bread alone <laughs> but that is a very important part of understanding what Britishness is all about. Yeah. How much has faddiness got to do with where we are in this crisis in hospitality at the moment? I, I worry that it's too much. I think if you start... God, I mean, this has come up for the research for this book, for pretty much every other book I've ever written, this, that our, our weird national relationship with food. Different countries, different cultures have different ways of being around food. You know, legendarily, the, you put two Italians in a room and they'll be talking about food within 30 seconds and they won't stop. And that's great. That's how they are. Um, you know, you try and find out something about Dutch cuisine and you're stuffed. You know, there's a kind of Northern European Protestant thing about actual enjoyment of food is somehow sinful. And therefore, they haven't talked about it for a couple of hundred years. We've got this bizarre thing, you know, up until the, the end of the Edwardian era, people were coming to England from all over Europe to go to our grand hotels and the fantastic restaurants in London and to eat our amazing meats and, 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 and to see some very, very, very good cooking. Uh, and then suddenly it kind of drifts off, it disappears. We have the First World War. There's an enormous amount of rationing. Food is a strategic issue for the Brits. Always has been. We're an island. You've got to ship stuff in. Uh, and so we've got to secure supplies. So we have rationing. Then between the two wars, we have an incredible depression. We also have this thing whereby it becomes socially unacceptable to talk about food. Uh, I'm not allowed to say to you, if you invite me around for dinner, what a lovely meal, because I might be implying that you actually cooked it rather than having servants, because your servants hadn't come back from the First World War. And then you go into the Second War, and then we ration again. And we come out of that in the 1950s, we stop rationing. But by this point, the, the Brits are we're kind of, we're about as ground down as some of the communist countries in terms of food. You know, it's not our business anymore. What are the government going to tell us we can have? You know, what's the national loaf size going to be this year? And actually, weirdly, when you look at what happened after that, when things started to open up, what really happened was supermarkets took over. You know, I don't think there's another nation in the world that has a supermarket system like we do, that effectively dictates, you know, what it is we're interested in and how. And I worry that, that where we are at the moment, you know, we're, we're in a, 20 years ago, you wouldn't have been able to fill a tent with people wanting to talk about food. We have a national obsession and interest with it. Are we, as a nation, catching up with the French? And we're all going to have lovely check tablecloths in every town square and guys playing accordions and that's where we should be? Or is this a 20-year-long fad that started with Gordon Ramsay shouting and burning people with pans on the telly and kind of rolled forward from there into this great big national obsession? I mean, certainly when you talk as a, as a, as a business owner about restaurants, we can't sustain a world in which... We're trying to pay staff to work, and their working hours are effectively not working hours. Yeah. You know, we open when you guys all finish work. Otherwise, because you know, we're your leisure. We're the, we're what you do for leisure. We're a leisure industry. We can't pay people enough for that. 
We can't charge enough for food because Weatherspoons is charging one ninety nine for a you know, fish and chip dinner down the road. You know, we, we, we've got to a set of unreasonable expectations that I think were unsustainable long before COVID. Yeah. Some of us were writing about it. Some of us were trying to work out, you know, you can't be paying a million pound a year in rent in a restaurant in London and expecting not to charge more money for the food. Yeah. So it's going to get, it's going to get tougher. I think we're going to have to eat out less. I think we're going to have to pay more for food. I think people are going to be cooking at home more. The price of ingredients is going to soar. Some things are going to be very difficult to get. I mean, I love as a cook being able to say, yeah, I'm going to do Thai tonight and or tomorrow night, and I can, you know, can get ingredients sent from online that never even existed in this country. They come from all over the world. I can do that, and it's marvellous. I probably shouldn't be able to do that. And maybe it should stop. I don't know. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's really the story we're going to talk about through food, aren't we? Yeah. And let's go right back to the beginning. Um, I mean, you know, as part of our culture, the very root of the word comes from cultivators to pick yeah. the wheat to feed mm-hmm. the people around us. That's how culture started. Yeah. Where did we lose our way on that journey where the rest of the world absolutely didn't and is still celebrating good wheat, good bread? I'm not, I'm not sure if it's actually a story of loss of culture with that. I think that, that that's more about industrialisation. The whole process of manufacturing bread, has it was the start of industrialisation, and it actually starts to get interesting for me around the point of the Industrial Revolution where people come away from... We, I mean, probably the biggest thing that's happened to British food is we had the Industrial Revolution before anybody else. Yeah. We invented it. We started it. Yeah. We got all those people off those farms where they were cooking the bread once a week, you know, select, you know, moving, the, moving around the different farms to get it, to a situation where people were living in terraced houses. Uh, we had to make bread for them. Um, we invented the, the tin loaf because it didn't need skills to, 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 to make it. Um, we created a world in which white flour was higher status. Yeah. And so you know, the white tin loaf becomes the English standard loaf because of feeding the working classes out of larger bakers. Exactly. And it is very much about class where you start your story in your own mm. home. The yeah. difference between your mother and your father, for example. Your, your mother was a head, headmaster's daughter yeah. and had a very different relationship with yeah. the, the bread on the table that your father did. He was soaking up the gravy, yeah. two yeah. slices on the, on the side plate. She was, wasn't having any of it. She wasn't. And, and I, I suppose that was one of my first sort of introductions to class. I grew up in the sort of 60s. My parents were that sort of hippie generation. They got together. They didn't argue about much at all. They wouldn't have argued about anything in their class background, but this was this kind of weird shibboleth around bread. You know, if you went to my, my dad's mum's house, the bread was on the table, in the sun-blessed packet, opened up, and everybody was taking slices off the top and mopping it in the gravy and, and, and eating it like that. You went to my maternal grandmother's house, and you could have a slice of bread if you asked. That was cool. They, they didn't mind. It was the same stuff, but it lived in a bread bin in the kitchen, and it was brought in on a plate, and mum would get really twitchy you know, if Dad had the bread on the table, and Dad would feel like there was no love in the meal if yeah. there wasn't enough bread for everybody to soak up with it. And that got me really interested. I've been, I've been obsessed with it ever since. I absolutely love bread. I, I eat it every day. I now own a bakery as well as the restaurant. And so, it's, it's, you know, it's, I'm so... I've just become immersed in it. And, and it, when you start talking to people about it, I think it's the thing about, about books... You know that thing where you, you often have an idea for a book and another idea and another idea and you're flicking away with them? And you, the one that sits is the one where everybody's got an idea about something and you just think, hell, there's another way of looking at this. And it seems like nobody's thought about it. 
And I, I genuinely, I started writing this because I just thought, you start talking about bread and everybody's got a great story about something that they used to do with Marmite and, and, and sort of rubbery brown slice from a supermarket or a, a grated cheese and carrot and a pita or something. They've all got stories about stuff, but it's not about the sourdough we're all supposed to love. It's about the stuff we were fed and it becomes our English soul food. Yeah. It's about memories, isn't it? And it's yeah. what we attach to, mm-hmm. to yeah. food. I mean, you know, it's the big divider, isn't it? I mean, just mm. in my experience of bread, you know, it's either a bloater or it's mm. a curer. Mm. You know, yep. it does both those things. It's the most industrialised ingredient in our, in our house. Yes. Mm-hmm. But it's also the most... It's the coolest. You know, it's bro bread, it's sourdough. I mean, who didn't yeah. make some sourdough? Well, yeah. I didn't actually during lockdown, but I seem to be about the only person who you didn't. didn't. <laughs> um, you know, it's, it's so boring. Sliced white bread is probably the most... Well, you're going to... I know you're going to disagree with me there, but I would say it's, you know, it's iconically boring British fare. Um, but then you've got the most exotic focaccia, bruschetta, mm. ciabatta, you know, I mean, you know, mm. these, you can smell them and it brings you back to the, to the food from mm. your holidays. But it's, it's about class that I really am fascinated by, that Britishness, that essence mm. of Britishness. So f- from that family table, mm. you quickly went on to your mother's obsession with nimble now, I mean, I remember my mother also um, ate yeah. nimble. You know, she flies like a bird in the sky because it was mm. just literally filled with air. Yeah. So that notion of good bread and bad bread, that, you know, mm. the, the association was really firmly entrenched by, by what age? I, God, I, I must have been about nine or ten when that, that started happening. It was about the same time as I started growing a lot and eating a lot of bread. And, and, and you know, it, it became my, my, my major fuel. I was, it's weird. I, I, I went on later in life to work in advertising. And, I, and I, I was always fascinated by the way that Nimble worked and Slimsia worked. Because it's that thing that you want to do when, you, when you're creating a product where you, you take, you spot something in the manufacturing process and you think, Jesus, that could be huge. And they were using this Chorleywood processed bread making thing, yeah. but they were injecting gas into the bread dough to make it fluffier and lighter. And somebody saw that and went, jeez, you know, it's a lighter loaf. And people are starting to think the loaves make you fat. But if we had a light loaf that didn't weigh of anything, people might be convinced that it made them lighter too and they could float around. And How do we advertise that? I know, we'll have a hot air balloon with a really cute girl in it and we'll have some music over the top. And it worked! It was the crappiest bread imaginable. And I, I, remember, I do remember really vividly the first slice mum gave me and it looked like bread and it just tasted like cardboard. Yeah. And, and the, the visceral disappointment of that. I mean, genuinely, a little tear. It, it's, it's, you know, it, it's... There's something about when, when food arrives and it's full of promise. It's the, it's the failure to meet the promise that's more painful than yes, the food exactly. being bad. Yeah. You know, just don't... It's like, don't mess with the BLT. You know, I don't care if you're hand-making lemon mayonnaise. I don't bloody want lemons in a BLT. That disappointment is enough to destroy it, even if everything else in the mayonnaise... No, anyway, sorry, I ran. You do, and you (laughs) rant a lot in the book, and you go from nimbly to the chip butty. I just want to read my favourite paragraph. Perhaps we lack the philosophical tools, the conceptual apparatus, to really comprehend how in a chip butty the bread binds the chips into the perfect mouthful. 
how the butter melted by the hot chips lubricates the mouth and floods the flavours out over the tongue and its receptors. A food scientist might call it mouthfeel. A philosopher might point to the memories of childhood or even the transgressive nature of something so resolutely unimproving. A sentimental writer might find poetic nostalgia in it. Somewhere, I'm sure... There's a food critic prepared to take a Marxist perspective and say that it combines the simplest of foods of the urban proletariat in a glorious fuck you to the bourgeoisie. <laughs> now tell us about your nan's chips and why it landed in the butty and why bread is so perfect for the chip butty. So nan um, actually grew up in a fish and chip shop in, in Bristol. Um, she'd inherited it from her mother, it had been her mother's shop, although her father's name was put over the door. Uh, it, it was a weird thing, but it was thought that if it had a man's name over it, it would be taken more seriously as a fish and chip shop, which is ridiculous. But she used to sort of literally sit on the counter as a baby, and the chips were served around her. Um, and she used to make them for me when I was a, well, a fat little child. Uh, and she made the best chips in the world. She made absolutely the best. She triple fried them long before Heston decided he invented the idea. And she put them between two slices of bread. And you'd have that with, you know, with corned beef. And it was, oh, just the most, the most lovely thing. And put between two slices of white bloomer with butter. And to me, the really, the really key part of it is if you go to most, in most cultures, the sign of greeting is they'll give you some bread. You break bread with people. But when they give you bread, they give you bread with oil or fat, so lardo or uh, some, a smear of uh, schmaltz or, or possibly a bottle of olive oil and salt. Because bread by itself isn't brilliant. It needs fat and salt. And so we in England don't have those glorious traditions, but we do have toast with which we're obsessed, which we slather with butter and salty marmite, and it's lovely. Or, or, or the chip butty. And the chip butty is about holding together all those carbs, but mainly it's about having enough butter that melts at the right temperature and runs down the side of your beard. And that's the, <laughs> that's the really key element, being able to have beard butter uh, for, for hours afterwards. And is that a, a private pleasure? Do, or, no, no, or I'll share it with you, perfectly yeah, happily. <laughs> um, but, it, I mean, is it a class thing? Would you have that... So you wouldn't have a chip butty, for example... In, in if you were impressing people, for example. No, we we still have we still have traditions around the table, and the, and, I, and some of those I quite like. But I'm also fascinated how those are changing and flexing constantly. Um, I, I'm, I I'm, was always taught, like like most nice little boys were, about that thing about how you eat soup away from yourself with a spoon. And I still know how to do that. And I, I live in Cambridge, so occasionally I get invited to a, a top table gig at one of the colleges. And they've got, like, servants in outfits and silver stuff and gold plates and things. Oh, yeah, I can really remember how to do soup with a spoon. But also, I'm, like, I, I get really worried when I'm in a Chinese restaurant that I'm actually doing the right thing with the right bowl. And when I pick it up and lift it, if I go to a Japanese restaurant and I have noodles, I've got to remember to make the noise, otherwise I'm insulting somebody's noodle broth. And actually, I have no idea where well-educated foodies are going to go when we start going to formal dinners in about another 20 years' time. So, uh, no, I think we're going to have a lot more flexes and changes in the class part. Also, we're, we're, we're blurring the classes. I mean, I, I spend more time sitting, talking about chip butties with extremely posh foodies than I do sit the, the other way around, you know, talking about posh food with, with, with working class people. It's, you know, it's, it's, it's just, it's really mixing because of the love and the appreciation of the tastes. And I think some of the things that, that you would consider to have been, like, low-status foods are actually our soul foods. 
They, they, there's something really wonderful. We've, we, we don't talk about it in any easy way in the UK, but we, we really do have foods that we, that we love that give us this warm internal glow. Yeah. And I, I, mean, I can write for bloody days about how Southerners feel about barbecue in the States. But, you know, why can't we get something going like that with... Yeah, why not chip butty? I mean, you know, we could literally we could talk for three hours about chip butties. Yeah. And I, we get a lot of nods around the room, and people go, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. and people would argue. You know, fights about whether you use malt vinegar or not, and whether it was. Oh, anyway, sorry. Carry on. Well, okay, well, let's go to your list because you have got. Uh, on page 17, oh, eight. actually, remarkably, <laughs> that was a that was a seamless segue, wasn't it? So Tim has come up with a list, and I would like to see a show of hands for how many people. Love, and we're only talking about serious love of these combinations, right? So, cheese and onion crisps, marmite in a soft white roll. Who's doing it for that? Right? Okay, we've yeah. that's that's not Some very well. Okay. Pickled <laughs> onion, monster munch, uncrushed in a ham baguette. Okay, that's one. Yeah, yeah, two, two on that one. You do anything? Uh, yeah. Okay. <laughs> you, you can put your hand up for two. Uh, ready salted crisps in a bacon roll, no sauce. No. No, 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 look, there's one there. All right, half so, so that's a half. half. Yeah, that's, that's good, that's half. good. That's a half. Okay, plain hula hoops on anything. Yeah, okay, yeah, there's a few yeah, there. great. And I think this one in the middle probably eats them off her fingers as well. That's the other, <laughs> that's the important thing. <laughs> cheese and onion crisps in a cheese and onion sandwich. Okay, God, some good ones. We have a winner, ladies and gentlemen. Hang on, we haven't gone twiglets yet. Crumbled twiglets over mashed avocado on sourdough toast. Really? Yeah, got one there. Yeah. All right, final one. Ready salted crisps, Nutella, white bread. Really? Love her, love her, okay, yes. Okay, okay, You're looking disappointed. No, no, good, good. And you'll notice that actually there wasn't a massive show of hands for anyone, so there is a missing combo here. There's a missing you've combo. You've got to work There's out a book combo. two. <laughs> oh, oh you see now, that's, that's interesting, because egg mayonnaise is the great splitter here. This, you know, you could probably take it right down the middle of the room. Egg mayonnaise with crisps in a sandwich, yes or no? yes. It's the most disgusting thing I've ever heard of. <laughs> Thank you, sir. <laughs> we are going to go on to your first food moment now, which is indeed the crisp, crisp sandwich. sandwich. Now, you did actually go somewhere very private to crumble your crisps into your sandwich <laughs> to try this out as a professional. Why did you feel the guilt in the first place that you needed to go somewhere very private? It, it started as a joke. It, it really did start as something quite silly. I was doing a radio show in... Uh, Coventry, I think, or, or somewhere, somewhere near Birmingham, and I, I said on stage that I'd never had a crisp sandwich, and I'd never had a crisp sandwich for a very obvious reason, which is they're revolting. It's just it's a silly idea, and nobody would put something that was like crisp and crunchy and friable in something as soft and lovely as a sandwich. Clearly they do. And clearly they do, and I was nearly lynched. I mean, literally, they had to get security to take me out of the building, because there were all these furious Brummies howling about the crisp sandwich, and how dare this man come up here and say, it's a bad thing. So I thought, actually, maybe I have been a little bit wrong. I've got to try this out. So I kept asking, like, food professionals and chefs and things like that, you know, listen, mate, crisp sandwich, are they all right? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I do it all the time. You know, that thing about the, the, the hula hoops kind of came from Andy Oliver. So yeah, don't you, don't, doesn't everybody do the hula hoops and everything? And, God, this, this is great, this is really good. But it, but it did feel like 
a guilty pleasure. And I very strongly feel there shouldn't be guilty pleasures. But I was intrigued that everybody was doing it in this slightly secretive way. So I thought, actually, if I'm going to do this, I am going to test this sandwich out and do the whole crisp virginity thing in a sandwich. So I'm going to do it somewhere a little bit hole and corner. So I went to a garage and I bought a cheap ham and cheese sandwich in one of those gas-filled pods. And I bought three different kinds of crisps. I put them in the car and I drove out to the edge of Cambridge, this little place there that's on the back of some lock-up garages. It's the kind of place you go if you want to do some really dodgy things. I thought, right, I'm going to park the car here. I'm going to do it right here, right now, on the bonnet. And I went around the front. It was a nice day. And I made the sandwich on the bonnet. And the first one, I've been going to a lot of restaurants at that point where they were doing the kind of the crumbly things. So some of them would do crumbly bacon and some of them would do crumbly nuts. And there was a sort of thing about toppings going on. Maybe it's a Japanese thing with sesame seed. I was like, okay, right. First packet of crisps, cheese and onion. Scrunched them up to a powder and I dusted it over the top of the sandwich. And I bit it and it was just bloody awful. It was like chip, it was like chip fat. It had this horrible, like nasty, soggy thing going to it. So that my publisher who had got really angry with me when I said I'd never had a crisp sandwich said you've got to have the little square crisps in uh, salt and vinegar flavour because they tessellate perfectly on the sandwich I said okay so I got those and on the front I made that into the sandwich but also in my research I discovered there's the other great space between people is whether they feel that you should smash the sandwich down once you put the crisps inside so they break up properly or you've got to keep them delicate so it goes as you bite into it so I very carefully got out my big pocket knife and cut it across on the diagonal and on one half I went on and tried it. And that wasn't too bad. It really wasn't that bad at all, particularly with the ham and the vinegar working together and it kind of the bigger chunks that got it. And then I tried the third one and it wasn't life-changing. It wasn't like I'm going to be doing this every day for the rest of my life and I can't eat anything else. But there, honestly, there was a thing that just... The texture... It's like really, really, really good Japanese food where the texture gives you a context for the flavour and the other thing goes the other way around. And I thought, I'm, I can't believe I just thought that thought. I can't believe I even said it to myself. That is the single most pretentious thing I've ever heard anybody <laughs> say. I would bring myself here, drag myself out of the car and beat myself to a pulp for even having thought that, let alone said it. And then I wrote it in the book. But the publisher disagreed very strongly. But anyway, that was the, yeah, the crisp sandwich. <laughs> but, you know, it's, it's actually to do with food cultures, isn't it? And yes. that is to do with nostalgia mm-hmm. and, you know, what you do. You, you kindly sort of allude to the fact that we're playing with taste we're not really we're playing with nostalgia and we're playing with things that we did with our friends yes. it's yes. nothing really uh-huh. to do with getting the right taste and Ab- texture absolutely and, and also because we're British or yes sorry my BBC head is frantically checking where I am and I'm allowed to say that <laughs> if we have nostalgia we can't have nostalgia without class Exactly. Um, and it's, it's in, I find it, always find it very intriguing talking to, to, to Brits about, about sort of where they fit into things. And they always identify with their parents' class when class was a thing. Yeah. But they're de facto classless themselves. And I mean, we, we, we're, a, we're a nearly classless society, functionally, in the moment. And yet we've got this massive alteration of, of what people's belief structures that goes back through our history and food is where it really starts to come out absolutely and mm. i mean that is what you do as a social historian in food you're telling yes. that story of class exactly. all the time it's absolutely fascinating let's talk about good and bad food the bad boys everyone loves a bad boy in a, in a loaf story uh the burger 
Yes. Um, now, you, and you talk about hangover food and burgers in the same mm. sort of sentence almost. Mm. You said you don't like the word guilty pleasures, but this is an umami overload, isn't it? This is where most people will, in the world, mm. will agree that there is nothing as good as a, a Big Mac on a certain occasion. Absolutely, yeah. Um, I, I had a beefy boy's breakfast this morning. Uh, yeah, the, the uh, Abergavenny muesli, I think it's called. It was just a great, big, meaty bat thing. It was just lovely, lovely. And tell us about good and bad food in terms of class. Can we talk about... Uh, can you be as specific as, uh, as that? Can you say that it is absolutely measured by class? I think we tend to superimpose class over it and then take ourselves out of the equation. Okay. So, you know, it's really, really easy to write something horribly scathing about the Big Mac. I mean, it's a revolting little puck of jellified nonsense with two cotton wool buns. Actually, what fascinates me about it is that's probably the most highly evolved human food ever. There's you don't a gig- even need to chew it. Well, no, but, but, but that's, that's not necessarily a bad thing. In certain circumstances, it is. But the biggest focus group in the world, like humanity are buying those damn things in huge numbers. And they're not buying them because they put them in their mouth and go, I want to be sick. They're buying them because it actually meets their needs better than that and actually gives them some joy. Mm. And that isn't a class thing. That isn't a class thing. You're talking about 90% of the... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And then we create the idea of guilty pleasures because it's it's our way of kind of contextualising, I'm going to say something a little bit class transgressive now, darling. Right. Guilty pleasure. And, and, and you've suddenly sort of undermined the notion of, that's a sodding great burger, and I've got a giant hangover. Yeah. It's going to soak it all up. That's yeah. great. Yeah. yeah. Which leads us nicely into your second uh, food moment, which is the tuna salad melt. Now, I am so not with you on this one. Tell us why you've chosen that, of all the food moments you could have chosen. So for me, it was, it's, it, was, it was another one of those sort of long, long stories about... I, I, I had loved a tuna melt when I first had one in a diner in the States that I was working in. I, like you, felt that British resistance to the idea of cheese and tuna in the same container. It's, there's something revolting about that idea, but actually it was completely delicious. So I got some... I started trying to make it myself. I started trying to chase down the perfect tuna salad. So I started with some very high-quality tuna in olive oil, tuna ventresca, uh, and, and I, I was very delicately beating it up with some mayonnaise I'd made myself. And it was utterly boring. And then a few weeks later, I tried it again. Uh, and I, I used a different kind of mayonnaise and maybe flavoured it up a little. And I went through all kinds of different flavourings, tuna in brine and so on, all marvellous. And they were all boring. They were all like, really, really, really dull. And then I remember that once I'd worked in a, in a prison in North Carolina where they made the tuna salad by emptying a tin of tuna that looked like, smelled like cat food into a big mixer and then pouring in lots and lots and lots of cheap mayonnaise. And so I thought, okay, I'm going to try that. And I bought a big can of tuna chunks, the cheap ones, in oil, important they're in oil, put them in a blender uh, and, and you, you, with a K-beater, then started beating it up and started pouring in the mayonnaise. And I couldn't believe how much mayonnaise this stuff was soaking up. It was like making a really, really good mayonnaise, but tuna flavour. And it was, and it was, it was the flavour, it was that nostalgic flavour. Um, and so then I, I then sort of took it to the tuna melt. And the melt works in a really weird way because... When you make tuna salad, you're making fish not taste like fish. That's the really remarkable thing. And a tuna melt, you take a lump of that stuff, use an ice cream scoop to put on a piece of brown, cheap brown bread. And then you drape some burger cheese over the top of it. And you melt the burger cheese under the griddle. And then put another one on top to close it down. Burger cheese also known as not cheese. The burger cheese is not cheese, but that's the key element. Yeah. Because I think 
if you ask chefs about ketchup, they'll all say, yeah, I could know how to make ketchup, but I use Tommy K like everybody else. We all use Heinz tomato ketchup. That's it. Other brands are available. No, they're not. There's no point. It's just Heinz ketchup. Everything's always good with Heinz. And it's, it's, there's a lovely Latin term they use in philosophy, sui generis, a thing that's of itself. It's kind of, it's just unique. It's its own thing. It, there's no point trying to make it. It's beautiful. And then you try the cheese that stuff it, it's a cheese product I don't think we're actually allowed to call it a cheese and there's, there, are, there are three grades of it the Americans make and one of them's a non-dairy cheese-like product one's a dairy cheese product one's, and it depends what percentage of actual cheese what microscopic percentage of actual cheese is in it but I think we need to regard that like a condiment not like a cheese if you eat that stuff and you're expecting it to be cheese you will be sorely disappointed if you melt it onto a burger there's nothing like it it's just like putting on ketchup so let's go with it you put this on top of the tuna. Brown slice, scoop of tuna, salad on top, over the top with the cheese. You take the top of it and you butter the inside with mayonnaise. And then you put both sides under the grill at the same time. So the mayonnaise, which effectively is egg and oil, kind of fries itself with a very, very slight smearing of sort of eggy omelette over the top of it. The cheese is starting to melt down. The cheese isn't actually there to get bubbly and brown. You don't want that. You want it to just sit on top of the tuna, like sit on its chest and hold it down. And then you flip the top over onto it and go smeesh, and it smeeshes out. And it's delicious. And it's delicious in spite of everything you're coded to say. In spite of the fact that there isn't a country in the world that eats cheese and fish together for very good reasons. Despite the fact there are places in Italy where if you put parmesan on your fish pasta, they will stab you in the neck. <laughs> in spite of all those things, this is delicious. In and spite of the in... fact that tuna doesn't taste like tuna and cheese doesn't taste like cheese. Because tuna doesn't taste like fish and cheese doesn't taste like cheese. That's it. Brilliant. I'm not getting many nods. I'm not seeing people going, yeah, he's so right on that one. My friend down there. Okay, just, yeah, yeah. She and I are going to go off around the world on a sandwich voyage. (laughs) And we're both going to come back changed people. (laughs) Your third food moment. Saucy in the loaf story. Mm. Tim says... There is nothing, nothing in capitals, these are his notes to me rather than the word, uh, in the world better than the combination of chilled corned beef in white sliced with salad cream. Each of those words sends shivers down my spine. <laughs> you love this. Now tell us why. Oh, gosh. Uh, so I, I, my nan, who used to make the chips for me, she would have them with corned beef. I was a terribly pretentious little kid, really quite a snot. But she indulged me beautifully. And the best thing for me was corned beef and chips with tinned peas. My mum wouldn't touch this stuff. My grandmother did it for me all the time. The chips were beautiful. The peas were mushy and that horrible, like, neon green they're supposed to be. The corned beef had to be three slices thick, and it had to come out of the fridge. Because corned beef, when it's come out of the fridge, has a kind of a crack to it, like a particularly good piece of salami or a very, very good pate. Whereas, actually, if it, it's still nice when it gets warm, if you put it too close to the potatoes, but it gets a bit sort of slurry-like and mushy, so got to be cold corned beef. I've got a long, long-standing battle with my wife about salad cream. She won't have it in the house. I think that's probably grounds for divorce in most of the civilised world. Um, <laughs> It's there for a reason. It makes almost any vegetable brilliant. It's, it's, it's lovely. I don't, salad cream, don't make that face at me. Again. I'm just salad looking around. Good. Who's nodding? Salad cream makes, what, what did you say, makes everything delicious? Everything delicious. Corned beef and salad cream together, perfect. Okay. But then I got, I got kind of wound up about the fact that everybody in the food world was doing Instagrams of these katsu sandos, these Japanese sandwiches that were made with a lovely grilled cutlet and shredded... Uh, 
cabbage on the top and their own special Japanese mayonnaise on top of it. Cut sliced through, stacked on top of each other, photographed. Yeah, it's a beautiful thing. It's a gorgeous sando. And I thought the, the corned beef sandwich needs to be done like that. Then I realised actually their mayo is very, very much like our salad cream. Everybody's going, oh, you've got to use Kewpie. It's the coolest mayo anywhere in the world. It's Japanese, you know, it's got MSG in it. Salad cream's better. Salad cream's gorgeous. So when we shot the book, I got the, I got the whole crew together and I said, look, we're going to make this corned beef sandwich. It's going to be, it's better than a BLT. We'll call it a CBS. Corned beef sandwich with salad cream. And we're going to cut it and we're going to photograph it like that. And we did it and it just looks like the most gorgeous piece of sushi you've ever seen. This kind of perfect pure white bread the colour of that I don't know what the colour of corned beef is it's the colour my nan's legs used to be but I think about, 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 I was going to say beyond that is about all I can remember and the salad cream was like a, just the faintest trace layer just enough umami to just kiss it off yeah actually we have done something great for the world so I give you the CBS go home try it remember it's all about the temperatures so the bread's got to be at room temperature but the corned beef itself has got to be a little bit chilled to get the pop salad cream Oh, you can go your own way with the salad cream. Any temperature you want. I'd like it chambrayed. No. Yeah, corn beef sandwich. I understand totally. nothing of what you have just said. <laughs> your final food moment. Of course, in any loaf store, we've got to go to the orgy. The orgy? Uh, the cook perks, the meat cut. It is an orgy oh. of oh. taste and flavour and experience. And actually, it for me... When I got to this point in the book, I thought, oh, I, now I get it. I really get it. This is one of your earliest memories, but it explains the rest of the book. Do tell. Oh, God. Okay, so this goes right the way back to when I was a kid in Bournemouth. And I was, as my lovely Welsh games teacher used to say, a neurotic thin streak of piss. He was, he, was, he was quite rude. I don't think you get away with it anymore. But he, I was really, really a skinny, neurotic, neurotic young man. And, and I, I wanted to get a job as a waiter because that was cool and, and there was a possibility of actually meeting a woman, which would be nice. Uh, but I wasn't any good at it. I was far too like, neurotic and twitchy and jumpy. Uh, and so I, I thought I'd go and get a job in the kitchen. Um, and so I went to uh, Forte's. Now, Forte's was a, an Italian, English-Italian family. Uh, they'd been around for, for years. They'd set up these fantastic restaurants in different parts of the country. Uh, in Bournemouth, there was this great Edwardian pile that had four restaurants in it. Uh, and there was a kind of one at the bottom that did egg and chips very well for the enormous number of tourists who liked egg and chips. And then there was another one that was kind of Italian in the middle. And there was a salad bar. And then there was the grill room at the top. And I never got to the grill room. I knew they had waiters because the waiters used to shout at me. But I was up there. I imagine it being full of Rotarians having sort of meat and drinking claret with their wives and wearing blazers and gold shoes. And that was fine. But I didn't know because I was in the sub-basement and I was a washer-upper. And I was a washer-upper with this... None of the other guys spoke English. They were all these incredible, really, really rural Italians that the guys had brought over to work in the family business. They were, they were lovely, but they were deeply, deeply agricultural guys. And um, I, was, I was so nervous, so frightened. They pushed me into the room looking like, like, you know, a bit like Oscar Wilde's slightly camper younger brother in a paper hat and a, and a uniform that was too small for me and thrust me into this room. And there's these guys all looking like Roman gods. <laughs> And it was, it was really weird, and it was frightening, because we had this, feed, this machine we fed through the stuff, and glasses would explode every now and again. It was just it was terrifying for a young man. And I'd only ever washed dishes once before. Uh, I helped my mum after a party, but that was, I mean, it was literally the, the one time I'd done it. And, but then there was this moment at the end of the first day, 
And everything slowed down, and these guys all went very quiet, and they started doing strange things. So one of the guys went over to the, where the orange juice was, and he started pulling out these tubs of orange juice. And another guy went over to the cow. The cow was a, like a, a cube, about a, about a metre deep on all sides. And it stood on four legs, and you put a, a five-gallon sack of milk went into it. It had a tap on the front. So he slammed another cube into the cow. That was ready to go. And then this big guy, who was the leader of them, he started handing out the, the cups from the under the milkshake machines. And everybody got one. He gave me one of these cups. He said, come over, come over here. And the lift came down. And the doors opened on the lift. And there was this cart. It's called a Gerardon. It's a restaurant cart. And on top of it was this giant oval plate and what appeared to be the remains of half an uh, ox that had been roasted. There was great gobbets of meat sticking to the bones, sticking up, and there was jelly all around the bottom of it, and bits of fat, and some pretty good bits of meat, and there was some, there was some dark burn stuff, and there was some really, really rare stuff. And then this bloke went over to the corner, and there was a rack of... This was before we had baguettes in England. We had French stick back then. And he put an armful of the French sticks and came over and gave us all one of these. And then we looked at it, and I'd like to say we sort of fell on it in a satiric orgy of... But it was incredibly polite. <laughs> These guys were all, like, looking at each other and they were trying to, to explain to me, without any English, what the etiquette was. And this bloke was going... And he was just showing me how to do it. And it was just beautiful. And we started eating this stuff and it was just the most... The bread, cheap French stick, but, like hot and still over there from the corner of the kitchen going into more meat juice than I'd ever seen and we didn't have a lot back then I mean, you know, a roast would be a big deal once every two or three weeks, nobody could afford orange juice, you got it in hotels as a starter in a tiny glass uh, and milk, you, know, you weren't allowed to drink the milk because it was too expensive you know, so that, that, that would never, and suddenly they're giving me this stuff and there was loads of it there was one guy he was, he was eating the food and, and he looked, they all looked to the big guy for approval and he looked, and he looked at the meat, and he looked at the bread, and he sort of lifted a cheek and went... <laughs> and it was a slight round of applause. And I, oh, my God, I'm, I am with my people. I love it. And I worked the entire summer, and I swear to God, by the time I came out of it, I looked like Thor. I was about six foot eight. I've obviously shrunk because I'm older. But I remember the, the shoulder things came out like this. And I had... I, Muscles and stuff. I'd, I'd eaten so much meat and milk and orange juice. I was glowing in the dark. I'd let my hair grow. I had long, at that point, I had hair and it was long and blonde and came down like this. I was walking along the beach and people, who is that man? He lives on meat. So, but but, the, but the, the thing for me was that, because my dad had always, he used to sneak off at the end of dinner. This is one of those circular moments that we bring you back to the beginning. He used to sneak off at the end of dinner because mum didn't like him dipping the bread in the gravy. And you go out in the kitchen, and if you were really lucky, you could sneak out and you could see Dad doing the thing with the bread and the gravy. And he, he used to call them, it's cook's perks, he said, or kitchen treats. And I, I just thought it was a lovely thing. And I found myself finally doing that as a, as a, as a young adult. And, it, and it just, it, since then, it's just sort of stuck with me. I still think most, most of the really glorious things you can do with bread involve getting some really nice bread and some really wet stuff and sticking the dry stuff in the wet stuff and putting it in your mouth, and then going, I think probably would be appropriate. (laughs) Thanks for listening. You can buy all the books featured on Cooking the Books by clicking on the bookshop tab at jellysmith.com. And while you're there, do sign up for the newsletter to keep up with all my news, including the supper clubs. Don't forget to rate and review the podcast on Apple Podcast, and I will see you next week when I am with a living legend, Claudia Roden.